if, as it said, a person's style is their mind's voice, then Patrick Lee Fermer's voice and mind are still wonderfully with us. Who can equal that prodigious vocabulary and those audacious flights of fancy, the light-worn knowledge? It all seems to come in an effortless flow of words, even if we know, in fact, how painfully assembled they were. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. This is episode 60 of the Travel Writing World podcast. June marked the 10-year anniversary of Patrick Lee Fermer's passing, and next month, John Murray's is republishing his best-known book, A Time of Gifts, under a new imprint called Journeys. So perhaps this is as good a time as any to reread Patty's books and to think about him in the broader context of travel writing. So on today's episode, I speak with Artemis Cooper about Patrick Lee Fermer and his work. Artemis wrote a great biography of Patty called An Adventure, which is worth a read. I also speak with Nick Hunt again, who also happens to be the series editor of John Murray's new imprint, Journeys, about a time of gifts and the other books they're republishing this month. And finally, as you heard at the top of the episode, Colin Thubron drops in to say a few words about Patty. All of that's coming up in the interview, but I also want to hear from you. Have you read Patrick Lee Fermer's work, and what do you find so appealing about it? Please leave a comment on the show notes. Go to TravelWritingWorld.com and find the episode to leave a comment. In travel writing news, as I mentioned earlier, John Murray is republishing a few titles in July. Uh, They have a great lineup of books coming, and Nick will talk about them in a few moments. This should be good news for travel writers as... You know, a major publisher like John Murray is reviving old classics, as Eland has been doing for quite some time. But this is a market indication that there is a growing interest in travel literature. Stanford's bookshop in London has pegged Tariq Hussein's Minarets in the Mountains as its book of the month. I'm reading through it now, and he's going to be on the podcast in a few weeks. So keep an eye out for that or keep an ear out for that. And lastly, uh, Ryan Murdoch recently published a conversation he had with Barnaby Rogerson of Eland in Ryan's new podcast called Personal Landscapes. Do give that episode and the other episodes really a listen. Um, And of course, I'll put links to all of this uh, in, in the show notes. In my personal update, not much to report. Um, I just returned from the Dominican Republic where I visited my mother. I hadn't seen her in a very long time, and I, I know I'm fortunate, I'm privileged even, um, for being able to visit her, but I hope that you all are, are lucky enough to visit your parents soon, wherever you are in the world, and of course, whenever it's safe for you to do so. Um, I'll be posting uh, a few photos from the trip to my Instagram, at jeremy.bassetti, and some audio field recordings I took while I was there to my website, jeremybassetti.com. Not much else to report, but gosh, I can't believe it's already July. So a month ago, we raffled off a copy of Nick Hunt's new book, Outlandish. I'm happy to announce that the winner is Jeffrey Graham. I'll be sending you an email, Jeff, to collect your mailing address. Uh, So keep an eye out for that and uh, let me know where I can send the book to. So it was great to hear from everyone over the last few weeks. Regarding last week's episode with Charles Nickel, Ryan Gibbs said, Interesting discussion on the borders between fiction and nonfiction and travel writing. Thanks for the comment, Ryan. You know, I keep thinking about, uh, I, keep, I keep thinking back to, to Charles' book, Borderlines, as it's kind of a clinic in storytelling and travel literature. Uh, read it, if not for the story, uh, for the literary devices he employs in the book. To, to, to hook the reader. It's, it's, it's good stuff. We also got uh, a few new five-star reviews. Someone, <laughs> Economist Lover, said, Jeremy brings an outstanding series of writers to the podcast. I'm buying almost every book from the authors that appear on the show. 
Thanks for listening, leaving a review, and actually buying the author's books. I mean, none of this would be possible without the authors. So on behalf of all of them and the industry, really, uh, thanks for supporting their work and thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for reaching out, everyone. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet me at Jeremy Bassetti, or you can leave a comment on the show at TravelWritingWorld.com and find the episode. While the show is free, it isn't cheap, so please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at TravelWritingWorld.com forward slash support. Or if you want to purchase one of our guest books, like Economist Lover, please consider using our links in the show notes at TravelWritingWorld.com. At no additional cost to you, the show will get a small percentage, usually a few cents, of the sale. So now, here is the interview. Artemis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I invited you on because we're recording this in June 2021, and this month is the 10-year anniversary of Patrick Lee Fermer's death. And his publisher, John Murray, is publishing in July a new edition of what might be his best-known work, uh, A Time of Gifts. You wrote his biography, a book called Patrick Lee Fermer, An Adventure, in 2012, I believe. And you worked Mm -hmm. with Colin Thubron on Patty's posthumous book, The Broken Road. Um, Your your biography of Patty uh, recounts what seems to be like a full life, a life in motion, of action, and of intellect. And if you could possibly do so, can you, I guess, give us a a character uh, sketch, a caricature of what Patty was like as an individual? As I knew him. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, because you see that um, I sort of differentiate that because um, writing the book, he's writing as a very, very young man. And the young man that he was is written by a 50-year-old man looking back. And um, and I think he makes himself out to be perhaps a lot more kind of poetic <laughs> and scholarly than he actually was. But of course, at eighteen, how can you know? How can you know everything at eighteen? Um, but when I knew him, I think that I saw the gift that made him so so such a brilliant traveller. So when I first went to see him after his wife's death, I was sort of dreading it because we were going to be together working, but we were going to be alone in the evenings. And I thought, my God, he's going to get so bored of me. You know, here's someone who's read so much, who's met all these wonderful people, who's lived so well and all the rest of it. He's going to find me really dull and mousy. Anyway, so, but we had 10 days and they went very well. And then as I was going back in the plane, I thought, gosh, well, that went well. You know, what a lot of funny stories I know. What a lot of books I've read. Um, what a lot of poetry I know. And then I suddenly realised that actually that wasn't you. That was him. Every time I mentioned a book, he said, God, that sounds fascinating. I haven't read that. I must make a note of it. Every time you told a story, he'd be hanging on the edge of his seat waiting to find out what happened next. Every time you told him a joke, you know, he'd throw his head back and laugh. There was this incredible responsive engagement. Um, We're talking about, you know, I was in my late 50s. He's in his 90s by then. Mm. And still this extraordinary spiritual generosity, this energy, this desire to communicate with people. So uh, just to clarify, when you said he was writing the book uh, later in his life, we're talking about a time a time of gifts. A time of gifts. Yeah, right. absolutely. And so you said the gift of him was uh, that he was a br- brilliant traveler, but it also seems like he was a brilliant human in love with the world, in love with literature, in love with everything that came his way. I mean, that's how it seems like absolutely he was. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much it. Yeah, so from from his youthful journey through Europe, I, th- I believe in 1933, just before mm-hmm. World War One, right, as the Hitler's coming into power in Germany, of course, he passes through. Uh, yeah, just Germ- before World War Two, by the way. Oh, sorry, World War Two. Um, and without missing a beat, he's active in World War Two fighting. Right. It seems like. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's nonstop. Uh, intellectual, if a bad student, from a privileged background, but a polyglot, and by all accounts, pretty handsome. 
Yes, he was. <laughs> and I think that the polyglot thing is interesting because, again, it's about communication. Mm. And I know certainly at least one person I know who speaks about seven languages. I said, how did you do this? You know, you didn't learn all that at school. And he said, no, I just wanted to talk to people. <laughs> and I think it was like that with Paddy. And, um, you know, he would go into... I don't know, there's a bit where he describes in A Time of Gifts meeting two shepherds in the back of beyond somewhere, I can't remember now where. And, uh, you know, they get round the fire and Paddy pulls out a bottle of raki from his um, um, knapsack and they give him some sausage and, and they start talking, but it's very basic. You know, they point to their nose, what's that? You know, point to the mouth, what's that? And, you know, it's just what's your name, which you can do in more or less any language. And you just get cracking and, you know, sooner or later, sort of the language doesn't matter so much. You're kind of using sign language and you're roaring with laughter and just having a great time. Mm -hmm. the, the communication is important. We, we have a joke here um, that, you know, the best way to learn a new language is to learn it in bed. And <laughs> Patty, it seems... Absolutely right. Uh, we, I did quite a lot of that too. <laughs> he was very friendly and I think he had a lot of opportunity to, to, to learn the language. Um, oh, I think he did. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, that the, the, the time of, A Time of Gifts was written um, well in to his midlife, um, recounting uh, a trip yes. that he did, that he undertook in the 1930s. Um, mm. So let's talk about this book uh, for a second, because I think from my perspective, this is his best known work. So how would you describe mm. this book uh, into the within the broader context of his other work? Because this wasn't his first book, it, right? I think it was, it wasn't his first book, um, but it was his first bestseller. And I think it was the book when he was very, very old. I was with him for about a, a week with a roster of other people who were keeping him company in the in really the weeks before he died. And all he wanted me to do was read from a time of gifts mm. and relive. And what I find wonderful about, well, several wonderful things about it, but one of them is the joy just pours out of it. And I think he wanted to remember that time when the world was young and he was young and this joy was all around, really. Mm -hmm. And um, what I think one of the most extraordinary things about A Time of Gifts is this strange... I mean, he does it very, very cleverly. So um, on the one hand, you never forget that this is an older man writing about the journey he did at the age of 18, 19. And so he's looking back on a past life, uh, on an earlier life, I should say. And at the same time, he is so engaged with the young man that he was that he can sometimes re-inhabit that imaginative mm. place as a very young man. And the thrill of seeing new, new things, meeting new people, um, being very hungry, being very cold, whatever it is. Um, all the sort of magic of that he seems to remember so vividly. And so this is a book really about memory, because in fact, he's kind of juggling between his younger and his older self. And so, for example, sometimes he will use a phrase like, um, let's say he comes across, I don't know, a great cathedral. And he said, I didn't know it then, but some event that took place there. And so he's always kind of playing with time and playing with memory. And I think the result is that this is very much a book about memory and remembering. And it's also the creation of a Europe that is suspended somewhere between memory and imagination, because that Europe didn't really exist. He loves being in the past and he's recreating a Europe and Europe had already been completely fractured by the empires that um, fell after the during and after the First World War. And so, you know, Europe is already in flux. Um, you know, you've had you've had the Austrian, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire completely, um, uh, you know, dissolving. And that throws everything into complete um, chaos. I mean, borders are being redrawn. Everything's in flux. And yet reading that book, you feel you're in a kind of 
eternal, timeless Europe. Mm. Yeah, I get the same feeling when I read Laurie Lee's As I Walked Out one midsummer exactly. morning. Yeah. yeah, very much the same thing. I, I, it's interesting that you're talking here about memory um, and that you're talking about the Europe that really didn't exist. Because I wonder, there are two things that I'm wondering right now is whether or not this is a, a joy of the past or like nostalgia of the past. And also, when when you speak of memory, what comes into my mind now is also the d- discrepancies that scholars are uncovering now between his <laughs> his journals and his yep. books. Uh, I Exactly. That's why he was always so jealous of that journal. <laughs> but you see, then we have to sort of think about the chronology of how this book was written, because nothing is ever simple. You know, he didn't sit down and one day and think, ah, I'm going to write about uh, you know, this particular thing. It had had a very, very long gestation. And the gestation begins when he's asked by an American magazine called Holiday Magazine. This is in the early 1960s. He's asked to write about the pleasures of walking. So he thinks, right, I'll, I'll write about that first walk when I walk from, you know, uh, the Hook of Holland to Constantinople. Uh, fine. So he sits down and he's got, what, 2,000, maybe 5,000 words? I don't know. And he's trying to compress the journey of a year and a half into that time. And of course, it's, it's absolutely impossible. So he's compressing and compressing and compressing and compressing. And then at a point where I think he's on the Romanian-Bulgarian border, as he puts it, he suddenly thinks, this is ridiculous. You know, I, this, this is not actually telling anybody anything meaningful about that journey at all. I'm just sort of trying to compress it into a space. So then he says, I, I, I ripped open the straight jacket and I wrote it to normal pace. Now that is in around 1962, 63. So he writes in the early 60s, the bit from the Romanian border to Constantinople. And then the next thing that happens is that obviously Holiday Magazine are rather cross because they, they're now told, well, you can't have that article because I'm going to turn it into a book. Um, but um, <laughs> they say, all right, well, you can do something else. You can, you can write us an article about the Danube from its source to its, uh, uh, to, to, to its mouth uh, on the Black Sea. So he says, right, he'll do that. And he's going to use this opportunity to visit Balasha Kontakuzen. And um, you said earlier, he seems to go seamlessly from this walk to fighting in the Second World War. But in fact, what happened during those four years between the end of the war, sorry, the end of the walk and the beginning of the war, was that he was in Greece and Romania with a Romanian princess called Balasha Kontakizen. And um, she was a wonderful woman, 12 years old, what was it, possibly 16 years older than him. She's in her 30s and he's barely scraped 20. But they, they're very, very much in love. And um, anyway, when he leaves her in Romania to hurry back and join up the war, uh, as a soldier in the war, he leaves one notebook with her, one of the original diaries. And I think there were probably three or four, but there was only one that remained. And Balasha kept that diary all the way through from 1939, all the way through the war, she was she was obviously she and then communism comes at the end of the war and she's thrown off her estate. They're given 15 minutes to pack. She's got a little suitcase. One of the things that she packs is that notebook. And when he comes to visit her in 1965, she gives it back to him. Wow. So suddenly Paddy has the evidence he's got the diary. And it only covers the bit that he's actually just written. And I think he's very, very, what's the word? Concerned, surprised (laughs) that the diary is so different (laughs) in tone, in structure, in outlook. And suddenly he's faced with his 18-year-old self, who's sort of quite cocky, quite pleased with himself, um, and um, sometimes, frankly, pretty callous. And um, he's actually rather appalled. And at the same time, this is the truth. This is the real thing. 
Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to square that circle, try and to bring the diary and what he calls uh, the, a youthful journey, he called it, which was the bit from Bulgaria to Constantinople, instead of trying to sort of square them up, the whole thing aside and thinks, well, I'm going to get into my stride and write it from the very beginning. And that's the beginning of a time of gifts. So already when he starts to write a time of gifts, He's written the last bit of the walk and he's got back the diary that brings him face to face with who he really was at that time. Yeah, that's that's interesting. He's writing in reverse, kind of like the Star Wars movies. He begins- he's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, he's, yeah, absolutely. Um, he's writing in reverse. And he's he, and I think he sort of thinks of it a bit like, you know, like um, like when you've got to do a long jump or something, you know, you sort of take a take a good luck back, you know, you go back as far as you can and then you get into a rhythm and you go and go and go and go and you just sort of hope that you'll be able to make that last leap and it'll all work out. So he writes A Time of Gifts, fabulous success. It comes out in 1977. It wins prizes. It's the book of the week. It's on the radio. Suddenly he's all over the place. Everybody loves it. And uh, then uh, he's got to write the next volume. And he does that. That comes out in 1986. So we've got a, um, a nine-year gap um, between uh, 77 and 86. And again, that one's a huge success. And everybody's longing to find out what happens next. And then that finishes. And now, now he's got to do that last bit. Mm-hmm. The the last bit of um, the last words of um, between the woods and the water, which is the second volume, are to be continued, and that's when he was faced with the same problem he'd had in 1962. How do I how do I bring these together? Yeah, and in your biography biography of of Patty at the at the beginning, there are two images of a manuscript that he's editing. And I think the caption <laughs> caption reads something to the effect of, you know, if if people ever ask what's taking him so long to write a book, they show them these images. That's right. John Murray <laughs> used to show him, show people when people said, why on earth is it taking him so long? John Murray, with a sigh, would just take out some of these pages and show them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to circle back to this, uh, the, the journal um, issue that you raised mm. with Balasha, because... Um, it seems that throughout his his life, he deals with setbacks in terms of his diaries and his journals. He, his first one, I think, is nicked from him in Germany or some in some place, and then he had another, you know, cache of journals in a storage unit that was sold at auction or or destroyed right, or whatever. Harris repository, yes, exactly. And all the letters to his mother, all the letters to his parents gone. Mm-hmm. To tell you the truth, I think it was the best thing that happened to him. Why is that? Because. He could go it alone. Okay. I think if he had had all those letters, it would have been more and more, he would have been much more tied to, you can call it the truth, <laughs> um, but he would be much more tied to what actually happened. Now, the fascinating thing about memory is, of course, that it's complete, it's an organic thing. So he's remembering in a very creative way. And there's a fabulous phrase um, of, I think, Jonathan Rabbins, where he's talking about travel writing. And he says, you know, the actual, the actual stages of a journey are often quite boring. You know, you've got to wait for the bus. You've got to do stuff like that. Um, you've got to sort of um, do a lot of boring things too. And he said, the job of the travel writer the bits that you want are like scraps of wool on a barbed wire fence. You've got to pick off those bits of wool and weave them, and these are his words, into the fiction of a travel book. Mm. Because a- no travel book is the absolute God's truth. It couldn't be because it would be actually rather dull. Right. If you were following the truth. I mean, it's about your perception. It's about your memory. It's about all kinds of things. If it's if it's just about the journey, then it's just a, what I did in my holidays essay. <laughs> so, so actually, you know, it's a very creative thing. And I think travel writers use a lot of the same techniques as novelists. 
Mm-hmm. And suddenly Paddy did. I mean, I remember this time when I when I suddenly, I can't remember how it came about now, when I found out that um, it must have been through, well, I don't know, I, I, I can't remember how it came about, but anyway, I must have found some letter or something and uh, where he'd said that he, uh, uh, that I realised that, you know, um, he says that he was on a horse when he was going all the way across the Great Hungarian Plain. And then it turned out, he wasn't on a horse at all. And in one account, he said he was on a horse. And on the other one, he said he wasn't. And so I said, well, all right, which one is it? And then he looked, he looked sort of really rather shame-faced as if I'd sort of, you know, caught him eating sweets behind, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and he said, now you won't let on, will you? And he said, um, the thing is, I thought that everybody would start to get bored of me just being on foot. So I thought it would be more fun <laughs> if I put myself on a horse. So, you know, this is, as I say, this is what novelists do all the time. Right. And um, certainly it's what, and they're using imagination, they're using memory to create something new that is based on something uh, that is absolutely true. There's no doubt that that journey happened exactly as he said it did. Well, not exactly as he said it did, but certainly very much like he said it did. Um, but there are, but as I say, or you know, memory is very organic. And then having put himself on a horse, then I've heard him give lectures and talking about the horse and talking about the gypsies. And, you know, <laughs> he, he's there. He's he's in it. You know, the truth becomes real. <laughs> Sorry, that the his invention becomes the truth. Yeah, but that's not completely off base because he was uh, uh, he he knew how to ride horses. I mean, that's something that he he did. He oh knew yes, how- he certainly did. He loved horses. He was a very good horseman, <laughs> and um, so he certainly knew about horses. And um, so there's you know probably rather fun too to to kind of imaginatively because I don't think he'd ridden a horse at that stage for quite a long time, um, and. Uh, and certainly there were no horses uh, that I know, well, certainly none in Crete. I mean, no horse could could manage the landscape of, of the sort of interior mountainous landscape that he was in. I mean, it was goats or mules sometimes, but that was it. So, yes, I think he was rather, you know, pleased to be reimagining um, the smell and the feel of being on a horse. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the the subjective subjective nature of of travel writing and how travel writing isn't really really true, um, but I'm, I'm wondering. Well, I'm not the only person who says it. I right. Mean, you know. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you completely. I, I, think, yeah. I think that I if you if you scratch a little bit, I mean, I suppose there is an expectation from the public that everything they read is somehow uh, it, that's exactly what happened. But of course, usually, for example, the boring bits are cut out. Right. You know, so you can say I had to wait three days for the bus to get me from X to Y. But you don't say all the things that happened there unless they were very interesting. So, you know, time is compressed. Other time is much more elaborated. Um, I think that happens in almost every travel book. Sure. But I I was, I guess, mentioning that to to set up the, the next question, which is, you know, how does one, well, how did you and Colin Thubron, um, you, you know, assemble the material or work with the material that was remaining that he never finished during his lifetime into what became The Broken Road, the, the last stage of, of this book, of, the, of this series well, of books? To tell you the truth, there was very little to do. It was all there. It was what he had written in the early 60s. Was he just sitting and on it? There were very often very different versions of it. So we chose the one that was that we thought was the most evocative or whatever, because it existed. It existed in several different manuscripts and indeed typed out forms. Um, and so we just did a kind of triage. But the actual thing um it was already there, the shape of it, the structure, the main stories, everything was already there. So we're talking about, you know, changing a, a but for a yet, or there was one place, one place, where Collins said, do you realise there isn't a verb in this sentence? <laughs> and I said, uh, do you think it matters? I didn't think it did. The, ver- the, the line was, he's describing stalks. And it's a beautiful description of a great 
the sky is dark with these beautiful, huge birds and their creaking wings. And he describes that. And uh, then there's a full stop. And then he writes, birds of passage, comma, like the rest of us. And I said, you're quite right. That sentence does not have a verb, but I think it's absolutely beautiful and it kind of rounds the thing out. So we left it there without the verb. Mm. And Colin was saying, oh, I think Paddy would be horrified if, he, if we put in a sentence of his without a verb. And I said, I'm not so sure. It's just so perfect. And so I think I won in the end that one. <laughs> that, that does sound poetic. I haven't read this book yet, but uh, I, I have a copy here and I look forward to it. I, I did read your biography of Patty and, you know, it does a great job to, you know, I don't know if this is the right word, but to to mythologize uh, the, the author. And, you know, I'm just thinking about how bold he was, especially in, in, um, in Crete with the kidnapping of the general and, you know, just what a f- kind of full life he had yeah absolutely i mean i didn't mean to mythologize him i mean i think actually there were other reviews which said you know i had always sort of hero worshipped this guy and uh, now now i can see the feet of clay sort of thing huh. um so i think I, I i got it uh i i wasn't i mean i certainly i always duly admitted to you know i developed a schoolgirl crush on him in 1972 and never quite got over it but, and I adored his books and, you know, so I'm very much, um, and I think after all, you know, a biography has to make the case for the defence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I did try and, you know, indicate where, for example, he was actually on foot rather than on a horse. Right. And there's two extraordinary descriptions. This one's called uh, a cave, a, a cave in the Balkans, or something, a Balkan cave, Balkan meeting, and another one where he gets lost on Mount Athos. And I said to him, Paddy, it's very interesting. You get lost in both of these, and you're on the edge, and it's getting dark, and it's very, very cold, and you know, you uh, you do these things, and are were they really two separate incidents? And again, this look of sort of having been caught out, you won't let on, will you? Um, he's <laughs> used the elements of something that really happened. In another context, right? Yeah, I, I didn't mean. I, I apologize for using oh, the word mythology. Um, I, that wasn't the the right word. I was that was the only word that came to mind. I I, I don't think you're oh, okay. idolizing the man. <laughs> it's very down to earth the, the biography, and I I feel like I I, I get where he's coming from uh, more. There's not mm-hmm. like this patina of romance uh, uh, with with his character, um, mm-hmm. but it is very good. It's very. You know, to the point. Like, I feel like I I know him. So, um, yeah, the war bit is 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 very interesting because I think you see by then he's twenty eight, mm-hmm. so he knows quite a lot. He speaks quite a lot of languages, and um, he loves the Greeks and can speak Greek. And yet, um, yes, I think it's 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 very strange. So when that operation took place in nineteen forty four, it was for a very specific reason, which was to give the Cretans a sort of morale boost, because by then it was quite obvious that the liberation of Europe was going to happen through Italy and not not the Balkans. Mm-hmm. By operation, you mean um, the kidnapping of the general? Oh, sorry. Uh, by the, the liberation, the liberation of Europe was going to happen that way. I mean, the, the, the Sicily landings led the way to the great allied um, push through Italy to liberate Europe that way, whereas the Greeks had always been given guns and armaments by SOE, the Secret Operations Executive in London, on the sort of vague understanding that one day probably there would be a big push and the Allies would sweep up through the Balkans. And that wasn't going to happen. By 1944, it was quite obvious that that wasn't going to happen. So um, the Cretans... Um, there was a feeling that um, you really didn't want them to. And it's a very difficult situation politically. People, all kinds of different political factions are trying to um, manoeuvre themselves into the best position for the post-war world, because it's quite obvious by then that Germany is going to lose the war. And so you don't want um, clashes, you don't want German reprisals. And so somehow they had to create a sort of bloodless coup that would give a tremendous boost of morale to the Cretans. And this was it, the kidnapping of the general. Hmm. 
Yeah, and it's a wonderfully hatched uh, plan, <laughs> the kidnapping him on the mm-hmm. road. The account is, of course, in, in, in your biography of him. But wow. And, you know, what what makes this story so interesting is is how how well how well he treated the general with respect uh, as he promised he would and even meeting him um, many years later and and some of the other generals and, and t- t- treating them with dignity as human beings yes, he very he very much felt that he very much felt that particularly after this wonderful occasion when um they're, they're, they've got the general and it's quite early on and um, the general watches the sun rise over Mount Ida mm. in Crete in central Crete and begins quoting this Latin uh, uh, ode of Horace's and um, and he stops the general stops after two lines and Paddy, continues the whole thing in Latin till the end. And I think that for Paddy was a wonderful moment because they had both known and loved this poem. And somehow this was something, you know, as he said, we had drunk at the same fountains. We had this cultural, huge, wonderful European culture in common, and that had not been destroyed. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of Eric Newby's encounter in the Apennine Mountains with a a Nazi soldier on break, and they they, they share a beer, and it's not Horace, yeah. but they share a beer, and you know they share the the humanity of of, That's right. of that life. humanity, mm-hmm. that humanity. Well, Artemis Cooper, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, Patty Patrick Lee Firmer and uh, his life and his work. I really appreciate it. Thank you. A great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> I invited you back so soon uh, for reasons related to Patrick Lee Firmer. Uh, first, it's, uh, I guess, June. We're recording this in June, and it's the 10-year anniversary of his death. But also, next month, um, you're the series editor of John Murray's new imprint, Journeys, which is republishing Patty's uh, A Time of Gifts. Um, I think that's coming out in July, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, well, let's just jump into it. And um, by most accounts, I think A Time of Gifts is his best known work. Um, and I was just wondering what, what what do you think the appeal is of A Time of Gifts? It's a it's a it's a rich book. The language is. You know, people talk about the language of 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 Patty as kind of ra- not rambling, but um, kind of sauntering, much like he was doing in Europe at that time. Uh, what what do you think the the enduring appeal is here about about this work? I think on one level, it's I mean, as you say, it's the extraordinary quality of the writing. Um, you know, he's a stylist like no other writer that I know. But this is set against the youthful adventure, you know, again, a young man setting out to have an adventure and to have this this kind of go on a quest and uh, walk to Istanbul. And then also there's the historical angle. You know, the time he's doing this is very interesting because he saw, it's 1933, 1934, you know, he kind of saw Hitler coming to power and sees these the beginnings of these great changes that in a few years will wipe away the old Europe that he's walking through. So it it really feels like kind of the documentation of of a lost continent and cultures that were about to be forever changed. And he saw this, you know, quite innocently and recorded it um, without knowing that it was going to disappear and then he wrote the book obviously after these events had happened so you get this kind of very interesting effect he he wanted to call the book parallax um that was his original (laughs) idea for the title which means um it's a point looked at by uh from two different perspectives at the same time so he meant that to mean kind of you know the youthful paddy setting out you know, to, to tramp like a wandering scholar all the way to Turkey. And then the older, much more scholarly Paddy, um, who had, you know, read and and 
and written and experienced more and had these kind of layers of learning to put on top of it. I think that's an important point to keep in mind for those who haven't read it is to understand or to to just keep in the back of, of, of your mind that, you know, this book is a book that was in part written in diary form and, and recorded in diary form, but much of it was also kind of built or constructed on the memory of a middle-aged man or kind of a man in his 60s, late 50s or 60s. So that dual kind of layer is something that it's important to keep in mind because it it's evident throughout the book. He refers to things that he experienced, but things that he now knows. It's this interesting mm. kind of give and take about then and now memory and reality, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about this kind of, to what extent things were reimagined or kind of, you know, reinvented after the fact. So part of the book, the appeal of the book, I think, is this kind of, this very interesting space, which I guess comes up in a lot of travel writing of if if is some if something is absolutely faithfully recorded or is it retold in a certain way you know is it remembered differently to how it was mm-hmm. yeah the, the the big truth question I think that comes out a lot it's interesting though you mentioned the the style point the stylist point and also the the historical import of an innocent Europe just before World War Two and I think Laurie Lee did a similar journey right around the same time. I think he goes to Spain in 1933, but Patty goes, you know, from Holland all the way to Constantinople in 33, 34, around the same time, traveling for the same reasons, right, to have an adventure or to have a quest. Yet the style question comes into play because they're, of course, they go to different places, but in terms of style, it's just, they're, they're radically different. And I think by reading them both, not at the same time, but one right after another, you can really internalize or understand how important the style question is for Patty's writing and also Laurie Lee's writing. Yeah, like, uh, very, very different books. But I mean, I think the appeal is that kind of, that spirit of setting out, you know, they're both exhilarating to read. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I was, uh, <clears throat> you know, I must admit here that <laughs> When I first read Lori Lee's book, it was um, a little bit easier to read and it kind of clipped along, I think because of yeah. the language, Lori Lee, I think he's a poet, right? So uh, those things, I guess, matter in ways that wouldn't to non-poets. But that's not to yeah. say that, you know, Patty's book doesn't clip along. It's just, it's a different type of book that I guess ruminates and, and meditates on description and, you know, the the, the, the memory of this guy's incredible like he's writing this in his 60s how can he remember all this fine detail without having his journals some of which were stolen like how how does he do that there's just something incredible about the entire work well there's it was interesting when i retraced his his route in mostly in 2012 that's for your there were definitely sorry that's sorry that's for your book walking in the woods in the water yes walking the woods in the water um, following as faithfully as I could his his path as he described it in the books. And there were a couple of gray areas. There were places that he described a certain view or a certain being in a certain location that I just couldn't find where that was. It didn't seem to kind of be a physical place that I could I could locate. Um and there were famously, you know, a couple of characters who were, he, had, he said himself, were composites of other people that he just kind of reformed into a convenient figure. There was a guy in Austria who he calls the polymath, who's this wonderful, you know, the kind of person everyone wants to meet when they're traveling. It's just this um, talkative, um, knowledgeable old man who, it was one of the things that made him want to do the walk, actually. He has this wonderful line. Um, he's talking about the Danube and saying that that they'll build power dams over the Danube. And I tremble whenever I think of it. All those fish from the east, they'll never come back. Never, never, never. So it becomes a kind of prophecy of of the great changes that are about to come to Europe with modernization and industrialization. And, you know, apparently this figure never existed. 
And I don't know if somebody else had said that line or Paddy had put that together from conversations he'd had. But it feels like the truth. You know, it, that did come to pass. Um, and Paddy and myself were kind of walking in the shadow of those changes and things that had changed the environment and the landscape and the culture of the river, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your book uh, kind of nods to part two of Paddy's three book trilogy uh, between the woods and the water was the second book of time of gifts was the first book and uh, lastly uh, the book was the broken road I, I believe put together um, it was mostly done from what I understand but put it was put together by Artemis Cooper and Colin Thubron posthumously my book covers the three books or the three parts of the journey that Paddy did I mean walking the broken road bit was interesting because the broken road hadn't actually come out at the time I did the walk, it came out the next year. So I had his route from Artemis Cooper, who kind of told me the route he'd taken, but I didn't have his words to guide me. So in a way, I was kind of second guessing. I knew, I know by then I had a pretty good idea of the kind of things that Paddy would have been interested in. And I was pleased to find when the book did come out that I was right. You know, he had kind of honed in on, on these historical places that I knew would, would call to him. Mm-hmm. Did he kid, kidnap any German generals? No, I didn't. I'm I, a lot less appropriate in this day and age for me to do that. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about this new series that you're editing. So John Murray's um, approached me that they were already planning to republish a time of gifts um, on this, yeah, on this anniversary time, as you say. And they were also republishing Freya Stark's Valley of the Assassins. And this, I mean, it's really the idea was to find other, well, overlooked, really overlooked travel books that had um, possibly from John Murray's extensive archive um, or elsewhere, but books that really deserve to be back in publication today. So they gave me the very enjoyable task of researching out-of-print travel books and recommending half a dozen, or well, in the end, it ended up being five in total, including the Time of Gifts and Valley of the Assassins, um, but finding other titles to go alongside them in a new series. That's great. What about some of the other titles? Yeah, so the other the other titles to go alongside these two kind of you know icons of of twentieth century travel writing. Fairly quickly, it, it seemed obvious that we wanted to publish stuff from the twentieth century. I think I was initially quite interested in looking a bit further back, but you get into this thing of I read a lot of books that were historically interesting, but not necessarily um, works of literature that that you'd really want to read today. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of kind of amazing stuff about times and places and events that have long been forgotten, but they weren't necessarily the kind of gripping reads that we were after. So one of the first books that really um, kind of obsessed me when I when I started reading it was a book called The Cruel Way by Ella K. Mylart, who was a Swiss adventurer, sportswoman, um, did a series of kind of incredible journeys to different parts of the world. But this was recounting a trip that she made in 1939, just as war is coming to Europe. And, you know, she, she kind of sees what's coming and decides to go east. So she takes off in a Ford motor car, which then was, you know, it's quite a kind of revolutionary way to travel a long distance. And she drove all the way from Switzerland to Afghanistan. And one of the things that makes this book interesting, apart from the, you know, the adventurous journey and the the kind of time she was traveling in, was she traveled um, in the company of a woman called Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach, who was also quite an iconic figure. She was a sort of of mid-early 20th century lesbian icon. She was an anti-fascist agitator. Um, And the two women take this drive together. And Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach also wrote her own account of the journey called All the Roads Are Open that we discovered is currently being republished by um, Seagull Press in India. 
And from them, we've got permission to republish some excerpts of her book in the cruel way. So you get this kind of the two angles on the same journey by two very different people. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting having that, you know, that the, that that two perspectives, mm-hmm. and often they're slightly contradictory, which is quite interesting. <laughs> um, Schwarzenbach was it becomes apparent through the cruel way is kind of on the run from a uh, morphine addiction, and she's trying to avoid the sort of social situations and the the life she was leading before by kind of starting again and and going east and sort of plunging into this adventure but she's dogged by the the ghost of her addiction all the way to you know to Kabul and beyond wow yeah it sounds like an addiction to that substance especially in Kabul around that time uh would uh would, would be a d- dangerous com- uh combination <laughs> I know she's kind of heading right into the epicenter <laughs> of where it's all produced, which um, isn't really discussed in the book. But I think she's trying to break these kind of social yeah. habits that she was in back in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so what about the other, uh, I guess you said five titles. What about the other two? There's the uh, Mississippi Solo. So Mississippi Solo is kind of outlier slightly in this series because it's from much later. It was written in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um and this is Eddie L. Harris, who undertook a canoe journey down the length of the Mississippi. Kind of it's the river was very important to him as a child. And it's it's a fabulous book. It's um it, he's kind of trying to quite self-consciously sort of become a man. You know, he's a he's a young man, he wants to make something of himself, he wants something to define him, he wants an adventure. So in his words, as an African-American, he starts, well, the, the, the words actually of a friend he consulted before doing this trip who said the Mississippi runs from where there ain't no black people to where they still don't like us very much. Mm-hmm. So the journey is done with the kind of the backdrop of the danger of a single black man traveling alone you know, through the down the entire length of the Mississippi through the southern states, and he doesn't. In terms of race, he starts off kind of saying, "I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested. I don't want that to define me or define my journey." But it does rear its ugly head, and there are a couple of quite shocking encounters he has along the way. But for me, what made this book really stand out is the I don't know just the just the kind of the the force of his personality he's he's a he's a fantastic writer who reminded me more than anyone of John Steinbeck in something like Travels with Charlie Mm. you know there's a lot of Eddie in the way he writes this book and it is a kind of voyage of personality through America but it's also a, a charting of, you know, the kind of state of the nation at the time he made this journey and just a fabulous account of a man right. on an adventure. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. It's kind of hard not to travel in the Southern States of the United States without confronting, you know, the, the ghosts of, of racism and, and all of that so. yeah and not i mean not just the ghosts of racism you know like yeah. proper racists who are <laughs> the, re- um, the living racists <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's kind of a love story to the river as much as anything mm-hmm. um and something against which he kind of tests himself and and tests his his kind of place in america at the time mm-hmm. and and what what about the final title so the final title is um it came to me in a wonderfully serendipitous way. So most of these books, you know, I'd, I'd got recommendations from often from other travel writers or from publishers um, or fans of travel writing. But this final book was, it just appeared on my doorstep one day and it was a neighbor halfway down the street who'd kind of vaguely heard about what I was doing. And he said, oh yeah, I thought this might interest you. I've had this for years. He picked it up somewhere and it's a book called A Vagabond for Beauty. Hmm. So it's sort of the most complicated book in a way, and it was one that I wasn't sure if 
John Murray would go for, and I was delighted they did. It's a collection of diary excerpts, um, letters, and fragments of poetry, and also bits of artwork that we're not republishing, we're just concentrating on the prose, by a young man called Everett Roos. And all of this stuff was compiled um, in the 80s by um, an editor called W.L. Rusho, about whom we'd know not very much, but he became obsessed with the story of Everett Roos, who was a young man in the 1930s from quite a bohemian family. And at the age of 16, he set off, he hitchhiked um, to the sort of south, south southwest of the United States. And on a quest, again, like Eddie Harris, he kind of wanted to make something of himself. He wanted to have this experience that would define his life. So he heads off into the, the deserts of Utah, into the Canyonlands, with um, a couple of donkeys, and he's got a dog at one, at one point. Just on a kind of mission to find beauty and to find experience and isolation and nature. And in many ways, it reads like, it reminded me of the kind of the beat generation. It's that, that quest for experience and quest for beauty that's quite, I mean, quite extreme and uncompromising. And the book covers a period of four years of his life, from 16 to 20. And he's sending these letters back to his, his family and he's kind of writing these diary excerpts. And so you see him grow as a writer. The early letters home are really just like kind of postcards with a sort of slightly boy's own annual kind of I'm going off on an adventure. Mm-hmm. But then he, he works and he works and he works at his prose until he's producing these quite exquisitely beautiful, intense pieces of nature writing. Uh, and this forms the bulk of the book. And the the big kind of mystery to all of this is um, Everett Roos disappeared um, at the age of 20, just vanished somewhere in the desert and has never been found. Wow. Uh, nobody knows what happened to him. There are theories which are explored by the editor, W.L. Rousseau, who compiled all this stuff. There are theories that he was murdered, um, there were theories that he just disappeared. You know, he fell off a cliff. They found a cave that they think he had his last camp in. He'd carved the word Nemo, um, like Captain Nemo, or that is no man. You know, it's Greek for no man on the walls of the cave and sort of left some stuff behind, but then just vanished. And it seems kind of out of character from reading his diaries because he obviously loved his family very much. He wasn't running away from anything. You know, he didn't have some kind of horrific past that he was trying to get away from. He seemed unusually close to his parents and, and, and his, and his brother. But um, yeah, it was just this kind of into the wild style disappearance, but where they never found his body or what happened to him. Yeah, it sounds like a definitely a, a tragedy uh, occurred. Uh, when when do that sounds interesting? That book, um, I'm really looking forward to to reading that. When do when do they come out? They come out um, next month. I should have the date at my fingertips, but I'm afraid I don't. But they'll be out in in July. Okay, eighth July the eighth. That's that's it. July the eighth in paperback. Okay. We wish you uh, good luck with the, this new series. Um, you're putting together another volume of, of, of books next year for John Murray, or can you say? Yeah, that? I should say that if anybody, and I'm constantly on the lookout for out of date, out of print travel books that people could recommend. So please, if you do have any recommendations, send them my way. You know, I'm, I've got, it's nice, I've got a year. Um, to find, I guess, about half a dozen new titles to bring out. And I've already had lots of recommendations and I'm deep in, deep down a reading list, but I'm always looking for more. Well, we'll help spread the word. And thanks uh, so much for your time again. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. And yeah, great talking to you. If, as it said, a person's style is their mind's voice, 
then Patrick Lee Furman's voice and mind are still wonderfully with us. Who can equal that prodigious vocabulary and those audacious flights of fancy, the light-worn knowledge? It all seems to come in an effortless flow of words, even if we know, in fact, how painfully assembled they were. But above all, that sheer exuberance and the infectious delight in life which comes bursting through his paragraphs. It's interesting that the firmer's chief role model was Norman Douglas, that dour and difficult man whose elaborate prose can't engage you as Paddy de Firmas does. Paddy, as he was universally known, seemed to take the read into his confidence, typically in those wonderful moments in his books when he suddenly breaks off and says, now comes a ramification of history which I feel is impossible to leave out, here it is, and off he goes for 14 pages. Or perhaps after some extended passage of history, he announces, there's a purpose behind this preamble, to lull the reader into receptivity before launching a private theory. And off he goes for another eight pages. Even his footnotes have always seemed to me like a helpless flow of information which he simply wants to impart for the sheer fun of it. That was his gift, to enhance and enrich things. And now in his books, he carries on talking as he did in life, long after closing time. We only have to remember, or to open a page, to hear the unique voice again. Paddy is still with us. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.